We're going to be continuing in our teaching series in Job called Sovereign Suffering. Last Sunday, we looked at Job's initial response to his terrible losses in chapter 3, where he cursed the day he was born, wished he had died at birth, and longed for death. In the next section, one of Job's three friends, Eliphaz, responds and gives his first speech. Eliphaz gave three speeches in the book of Job. His first speech is recorded here in chapters 4 and 5. Now, we're going to look at the first part of it today. We're going to discover three R's, Eliphaz's rebuke, Eliphaz's reasoning, and Eliphaz's revelation. We're basically going to look at the entire chapter here. So please take your Bibles and turn right over to Job chapter 4. Many of you are already there. Job chapter 4, we'll be looking at the whole chapter. We'll be discovering those R's. I'd like to pray before we get to work. Father, we thank you for the time we've had so far in being able to have fellowship and worship you through song, worship you through prayer, and worship you through giving, giving of our tithes and offerings. Father, we now ask that you humble us further and prepare our hearts that you might sow the truth in our hearts, that it might produce a harvest of righteousness. We pray that you teach us through your word this morning. Help us to understand the truth that we see here in Job 4. Help us to apply the truth. Help us to live out the truth. We pray that you would challenge us, uh, that we might have some preconceived notions or bad theology that you aim to address this morning and transform. We pray that you would do that. We give you this time. We commit ourselves to you when we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We'll begin with our first R, number one, Eliphaz's rebuke. We see this in verses 1 through 6, and we'll start at verses 1 and 2. Here is what the text says next. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? So right after Job gets done with his first, I'd say, set of complaints, this is what is said next, and it's Job's friend Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz is the first of Job's friends to actually speak, which tells us something about him. Uh, it reveals something about him. It reveals that he was the oldest of the group, the oldest one of the group. In antiquity, the oldest man present was given a degree of preeminence and the first opportunity to speak or weigh in on matters. Um, this is alluded to in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 32. You might think of this, this scripture, and it's probably this particular scripture, I believe it is, that says, when a gray-haired man enters a room, you are to rise for them. You are to show them some level of respect. And so uh, him speaking first here shows that he's the oldest. He has the seniority. He's the oldest guy there. He's the one that is uh, worthy of the highest level of respect among these friends. And it says that Eliphaz was a Temanite. 
we've talked about this in the past. This means he was from Teman, a city in Edom that was known for its wisdom. Jeremiah 49, verse 7, like I said, we covered that a few weeks ago. Now, in the previous section, Job used poetry to express his desire for his suffering to immediately end, even by death if necessary. As Eliphaz was listening to Job, he detected Job's impatience. He could tell that Job was not happy with his situation and that he wanted it to end very quickly. He just sensed a lot of impatience coming through Job's poetry. And he, as he's listening and hears all of this impatience, he wonders if he, or maybe Bildad or Zophar, what would happen if they spoke up? Would Job be impatient with them? Would they begin to speak and would Job impatiently listen and, and then interrupt them and try to stop them from saying anything more? Would he try to silence them? And this is why Eliphaz begins his speech with that precise question, will you be impatient? I mean, this would be something that I would probably ask or you would ask if you were listening to a friend impatiently complain about all his problems. You would probably wonder, well, if I say something, are you going to be impatient with me as well? And that's precisely what's going on here. And then he says something rather funny. Yet who can keep from speaking? <laughs> that's funny to me. If we say something, are you going to respond to us impatiently too? But then again, I guess it's kind of worth it to deal with it because who can not speak right now? Somebody has to say something to you. What you've just said for 20-some-odd verses is insane. Somebody has to speak. This is what he's saying, which is funny. And of course, he was concerned that Job would impatiently lash out at him. But he felt that he had no choice but to speak up. Job's complaining and impatience didn't make much sense to Eliphaz, and he explains why in the next lines. He's listening to Job, and he's sitting here thinking, why is he saying what he's saying? Why is he so impatient? And here is why he's baffled by Job's complaint, verses 3 through 5. He says this to Job, Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Job had spiritual gifts that he used to profit or benefit others. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 speaks to this. He had the spiritual gift of teaching. And according to this text, he used it to what? Instruct many. He had the spiritual gift of exhortation, and he used it to do what? Strengthen weak hands. He had the spiritual gift of encouragement, and he used it to uphold him who was stumbling and make firm, feeble knees. Every true believer has been given a spiritual gift or gifts, 1 Peter 4.10. If you are a believer, you have a spiritual gift or you have spiritual gifts. 
The question is, how are you using it or them to benefit, to profit others? How are you using your gift or gifts to build up the church? 1 Corinthians 14, 12. Through the consistent use of his spiritual gifts, Job became his community's godly go-to guy, his community's holy man, his community's wise man, his community's encourager. When the people of Uz needed spiritual help, they went to Job. And that's what Eliphaz is telling us in this text. And yet when adversity and suffering came to Job, he became impatient and dismayed. Dismayed meaning discouraged. He was now, in a sense, failing to live out the encouragements he had offered to others in the past. In other words, Job was not practicing what he preached, and this baffled Eliphaz. Job's initial complaint in chapter 3 baffles Eliphaz because Job's acting in a way that's unbecoming of him. He has been the one who has encouraged people and built people up through the years, and yet when adversity comes to him, the bottom falls out. He's a basket case. He's not even practicing. At this point, he's not even practicing what he normally preaches. And Eliphaz is saying, I don't understand what's going on here. But Eliphaz is not the one who lost all his children, is not the one who lost his wealth, and is not the one covered in pussy boils. He's not the one who had a wife just tell him, hey, just curse God and die. And I would like to say that uh, this kind of change in Job's behavior, right? He goes from being this holy man who encourages others to a total basket case. I'd like to just point out at this point that this does not reveal a flaw in his character. It reveals that human flesh is weak, Mark 14, 38. It reveals that practicing what we preach can be difficult at times, especially in the midst of difficult seasons. Amen? And this is precisely why we must learn to rely on the Holy Spirit. He is our helper, the helper whom Jesus sent on His behalf. He is our advocate. He is our helper. John 14, 16. Becoming more and more convinced that our failure to practice what we preach isn't entirely due to our sinful nature, and yet it is in a sense, but it's due to the fact that we don't rely on the Holy Spirit for strength. We don't rely on the Holy Spirit for wisdom. We don't rely on the Holy Spirit for power. We don't call upon the Holy Spirit to fill and work through us. In fact, during difficult seasons, we tend to forget that He's there at all. If a godly man or woman is strong, it is not because of them, but because the Spirit is inside them giving them strength, giving them power, giving, giving them the ability to endure 
giving them the wisdom they need so that they can verbally respond to their situation in a way that exalts God, in a way that doesn't contradict our testimony. Because that's, in a sense, what Job is doing here a bit. He's contradicting his testimony. And I would say that apart from the Holy Spirit, it is impossible to practice what we preach. It is impossible to live out the Word of God. So if you have a hard time living out the Word of God, maybe it's because you're not relying on the Holy Spirit. You're not spending enough time in prayer relying on the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what's going on here with Job. I know the Spirit was given differently in the Old Testament, but in any case, since he's a committed believer, he has to have the Holy Spirit to some degree. But that <laughs> chapter 3 reveals that he was not relying on the Spirit. Eliphaz is mind-blown. He just can't figure out how this godly friend has been reduced to this sort of spiritual rubble. This guy was so full of life and vibrant and filled with righteousness and godliness, and now he wants to die. He even wishes he was a stillborn. He has encouraged half this town. What is going on with my friend? That's what Eliphaz is saying to himself. In the next line, Eliphaz attempts to encourage Job. It's more like a flaming train wreck, but he tries to encourage Job the best that he can. Let's move to the next line. We look at verse 6. Uh, it says, is not your fear of God your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope? And he continues to try to encourage him in the next verses, but in any case, it's not working out here. Eliphaz asks a rhetorical question that reveals his and Job's worldviews. Both men, including Job, believed that good people get good things from God, and bad people get bad things from God. That, that is probably, that is the fundamental truth of their theology. This is what Job and his friends believe, without a doubt. They believe if you, if you do good, you'll get good. If you do bad, you'll get bad. Christopher Ash's commentary on this verse is just wonderful. Uh, it was as if Eliphaz was basically saying this to Job. The fact that you fear God and do so genuine, genuinely with integrity ought to give you confidence and hope as you look to the future. You and I know that God rewards really pious people with blessings. That is how the universe works. There is moral order. God gives good things to good people. So what is this all about wishing you had never been conceived and born? About wishing you were dead? About speaking as if you had nothing to look forward to? You know this is nonsense, for you are a good person, and good things happen to good people. That's in a sense what Eliphaz is saying to Job. Rather than encouraging Job to look to God, who is merciful and gracious, right? Exodus 34, verse 6. Eliphaz encourages him to look to himself and to focus on his own piety, to focus on his own alleged goodness, 
which should guarantee a good future. And if Job repented of his alleged sins, the sins that Eliphaz believed caused him to lose his wealth, children, and health, this would just make his future even brighter. It becomes so bright, he'd have to wear shades. Remember that dumb 80s song? Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job did not appear to possess a synergistic view of salvation where man and God worked together for it. I believe they had a monergistic view, meaning that they believed that God alone saves. I think they believed that fundamentally. What they did not understand is that there are no good people, including themselves. The fact that they made animal sacrifices should have reminded them that fact on a daily or weekly basis. We know that Job made sacrifices. He was a godly man. If his friends were godly men, then they followed that as well. The fact that you have to kill an animal and cut its throat and bleed it out because of your sin reminds you that there is no goodness in the world, that we are not inherently good, that we are sinners. Another thing they didn't understand is that adversity does not discriminate. It falls upon the wicked and it falls upon the righteous, just like the rain. Now, God was about to teach these men this truth through Job's example. They thought piety prevented suffering. But in Job's case, his piety provoked it. Job didn't suffer because he was unrighteous. He suffered because he was righteous. You know, these men were like the prosperity preachers of our day. Those who promise only God's goodness to those who think and do good. It is true that God blesses those who obey Him, right? Proverbs 16, verse 20. But Scripture never promises us comfort and ease. It does, however, promise that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Tim 3.12 It promises that in this world we will have trouble, but take heart because our Lord has overcome the world, John 16, 33. Eliphaz's ancient prosperity theology is further illustrated in the next section. Let's move to the second R. Eliphaz's reasoning, we see this in verses 7 through 11. We'll begin at verse 7. Listen to what Eliphaz says next. Remember who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Now this is essentially another rhetorical question. The whole section is filled with them. Eliphaz asks Job to give him an example of an innocent person who has died an untimely death, of a, a morally upright person who has been cut off from life in his prime. According to Eliphaz's view, 
This has never happened and it will never happen because innocent, morally upright people do not die untimely deaths, nor are they cut off. I suppose Eliphaz had never heard of righteous Abel who lived not terribly long before Eliphaz. Abel did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He offered the proper sacrifices, the sacrifices that the Lord had prescribed to humanity. He offered the right ones. He was righteous before the Lord. He was innocent. He was upright. He was blameless. He was like Job, but he perished. He was cut off. He died what we would call an untimely death. Why? Because his wicked, worthless brother Cain murdered him. Genesis 4, 2 through 8. This is the worldview of most morally serious religious persons. This is what the inhabitants of Malta were thinking when they saw a viper fasten itself to the Apostle Paul. What could they conclude from the fact that he was about to be killed by a poisonous snake? No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Acts 28 verse 4. The natives of Malta and Eliphaz had this in common. They believed that if a person perishes, is cut off, dies an untimely death, it proves that he or she cannot be innocent or morally upright. They cannot be a blameless person. With this sweeping statement, Eliphaz left no room for doubt about Job's guilt. The implication was that if Job were perishing, then he was surely not innocent. If he was truly upright, he would not be cut off like this. Eliphaz shares more of his reasoning in the next lines, verses 8 and 9. He says, As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they are consumed. Since Job was undergoing destruction, Eliphaz reasoned he must be one of those who sow trouble and reap it. He tells Job he has seen this happen with others, like he's a first-hand witness to this. Maybe some of his neighbors were sowing iniquity and he saw them get blasted by God's breath. Nowhere else in this book did Job's friends state better their standard view of divine justice than in here in verse 8. Theirs was the theology of Proverbs 22, verse 8. He who sows wickedness reaps trouble. As a general rule, this is true. But Job and many others in the Bible, most notably Jesus Christ, were exceptions to this rule, weren't they? In verse 9, Eliphaz really, in my mind, does the unthinkable. He uses strong imagery to depict God's disciplinary judgment and wrathful vengeance against those who plow iniquity those who plow iniquity, those who sow trouble. He tells Job, it is by the breath of God they perish. 
I just want you to stop and think about that statement. And I love it. It's a poetic statement. I believe there's truth to it. But I want you to consider that statement in this context. How did Job's children die? Did not a wind blow the house of the older, oldest son over and kill all his children, all ten of his children? So, so, so he's speaking of the breath of God destroying the wicked. And in context, it was a breath of wind that killed Job's children. Was Eliphaz implying that Job's iniquity caused God to blow that house down and kill his children? Eliphaz knew how they died. Why would he mention the breath of God while knowing that Job's children had been killed by the wind? This was either a classic case of a well-intentioned person using insensitive words while trying to encourage a friend, or it was a cold and deliberate attempt to blame Job for the death of his own children. You see it, right? It's there. Why would he use that as an illustration while knowing those kids died by wind? I mean, they had come to encourage Job. Is that encouragement? Or maybe Eliphaz was simply trying to warn Job about additional consequences if he refused to repent of the iniquities that he allegedly plowed. Like, you know, hey, God can blow down more of your life if you continue in this unrepentance. And Eliphaz, again, did not realize, did not know that Job was blameless and upright, had committed no sin. I really don't know what Eliphaz was after here, but I know that he did great damage with his words. And it's all primarily because his reasoning, his worldview, that if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. Job was getting bad, so what must that mean? He had done bad. He had sinned. God had struck him with horrible sores because of his sin. God had killed his children because of his sin. God had wiped out his entire business and wealth, all of his animals taken and stolen because he had sinned. That is what Eliphaz, that is what Bildad, that is what Zophar believe. Their worldview does not have a category for righteous suffering. It just can't happen in their mindsets. And now they're just, look what Eliphaz is doing. Could it be that God blew down your house? Because his breath can destroy his enemies and those who plow iniquity. Could it be that that's why the house caved in? Boy, you really need to repent, brother. I don't know about you, but at this point, Eliphaz would have got a punch in the mouth from me. I'd say, I don't even know who invited you. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. 
Let's move to the next lines. Verses 10 and 11. He says, and this just just more salt in the wound here. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. This is pure poetry. And if you're like me, I have no idea what it meant when I first heard it or looked at it. But it is poetry, and that's what makes it challenging. But it's also extremely sad poetry. Eliphaz, what Eliphaz is essentially saying, and I'll break down the phrases, what he believes and is essentially telling Job is that he was irresponsible and failed to protect his children. Maybe, maybe Eliphaz thinks that it'll be an easier pill for Job to swallow if it's in the form of poetry. The phrases, the roar of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion are allusions to Job's loud wailing, his loud crying, his loud shrieks, his painful emotional shrieks. The phrase, the teeth of the young lions are broken, is an allusion to Job's deceased children. The phrase, the strong lion perishes for lack of prey, is an allusion to Job's lack of diligence and to his irresponsibility. The phrase, the cubs of the lioness are scattered, is an allusion to Job's failure to protect his children. According to Eliphaz, Job was irresponsible and failed to protect his children. If he had repented of his sin, God would not have destroyed his family and life. The lion and his cubs would be very much alive, very healthy, very prosperous, plenty of prey to eat, consume. That's the poetry of it. But God has has brought this lion, Job, Job the lion, and his, his little lion cubs, his children, he has brought them down because Job is an irresponsible parent. That is what Eliphaz is saying. As I said, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had no category for righteous suffering in their theology. didn't exist. They were two-dimensional And they were dead wrong about Job. He was blameless and upright. He feared God. He shunned evil, right? This is what we've learned about him already. The book starts with that. The book of Job does not want us to think that Job was being punished for his iniquities. It wants us to know that he wasn't being punished by God at all. There was a test playing out. But Satan was persecuting him. Because of his righteousness. As I said, he did not suffer because of unrighteousness, what Eliphaz and the friends thought, but because of righteousness. Now, the Jews of antiquity thought the exact same way. They had no category for righteous suffering in their theology, and they still don't, even today. 
the, the basic worldview of, of Jewish people is much like everyone else's. It's very worldly. It's unbiblical, even though they have the Scriptures and the prophets and the Messiah. But they just simply think a fundamental baseline truth that if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. They still think that way today. Long before they were a nation, these people were wrong about Job and their theology was wrong here. And, and later on, the, the Jewish people were wrong about Jesus because they believed the reason why He was suffering and was crucified and killed is because He was what? Unrighteous, a lawbreaker. And yet Christ was the righteous one. Why didn't they... The, the Jews of antiquity of Jesus' day accept Him as Messiah. They, they had no category for righteous suffering. They had no understanding of, of Isaiah 53. They rejected their Messiah because they had no category for righteous suffering. These guys were wrong about Jesus and the Jews even today. Or they were wrong about Job and the Jews today. They're still wrong about Jesus. You know, Jesus suffered for the unrighteous, not because he was unrighteous. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He suffered for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18. They didn't get this. If you don't have a category for righteous suffering, you're not going to get the work, the person and work of Jesus. You're not going to understand the world you live in rightly. You're going to have a corrupted worldview. In an attempt to establish his authority and bolster the seriousness of his claims, Eliphaz shares an eerie encounter he had with a quote-unquote spirit we can move to the third R now. We call this Eliphaz's revelation. Verses 12 through 21. We'll begin at 12 through 14. Listen to what he says next. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Eliphaz now turns from conventional wisdom arising from observation and experience of the moral order to a privileged perspective granted in an auditory revelation. He says, a word was brought to him stealthily. The Hebrew word for stealthily is ganab, which is sometimes rendered steal or steal away or carry away. In the King James Version, the word secretly is used in place of stealthily, and I like that better. The point is that Eliphaz was the only one to, to witness this vision, this dream. He was the only one to, to hear the words of this spirit. If he was married and his wife was lying in bed next to him during this, she did not see anything. She did not hear any of the words of the spirit. Only he heard it. He says, only my ear received the whisper of it. So this is some sort of divine, direct revelation to Eliphaz. Keep in mind, this is before Scripture was recorded and written. 
And he says it occurred amid thoughts from visions of the night, which means while he was asleep and actually dreaming. He says it was when it happened when deep sleeps or deep sleep falls on men. Well, what do we typically call this sort of deep sleep where we have dreams and these sorts of things? That's the REM, right? REM sleep where your eyes are flying all over behind your eyelids. It occurs roughly 90 minutes after a person initially falls asleep. During this phase, we are most likely to dream. Our arms and our legs become temporarily paralyzed to prevent us from physically acting out our dreams. Although once in a while, an arm on me gets loose. Have you ever just been dreaming, all of a sudden your whole body jerked? Or you maybe smack your spouse or your other pillow over there? That's happened. Yeah. Some people, some people get up and sleepwalk, and they're actually in a deep dream the whole time they're sleepwalking. They go down and get a six-pack of beer, come back, drink it, and then go back to bed. Like, I, I think I drank hams last night. I must have had a nightmare. You know what I mean? Yeah, your body literally becomes paralyzed at this point. But you can still be herky-jerky, because I, I know I am, especially when you feel like you're falling, right? I hate those falling dreams. This is the mode of sleep he was in. He was in the REM sleep, deep asleep. He was dreaming when this spirit allegedly visited him. The dreamlike vision Eliphaz experienced filled him with a sense of dread and, and much trembling. The Hebrew word for dread is pakad. It can be rendered fear. It can be rendered terror. The NIV uses fear, which I do like better. As this fear, as this dread gripped Eliphaz, all his bones began to shake. He began to tremble violently. In the next two lines, he describes what he saw. Verses 15 and 16, he says, A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance a form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. He says, I saw a spirit glide past my face, and then it stopped. And it, it stood there perfectly still in total silence. He tells us that he could see its form, but he wasn't able to discern its appearance. In other words, it didn't have discernible features. It didn't have a face. It, it didn't have extremities, a torso. It, it didn't have a lower half. It, it didn't have the, the shape of a man or an animal or something that he could say, it looked like a giraffe. He could see a shape. He could see a form, but it didn't have discernible features. Now, I do not believe this was the Holy Spirit because He is fully invisible. He cannot be seen at all, whether it be in a dream, out of a dream, you're walking down the street. God is invisible. The Holy Spirit is invisible. Now, this Spirit reveals truth to Eliphaz, which causes me to think maybe it's the Holy Spirit, but there are also angels who bring truth to human beings. This is not a a ghost like Casper or something like that. 
But I don't think it's the Holy Spirit either. Eliphaz tells us that the hair on the back of his neck stood straight up. How many of you have experienced that kind of terror and fear? Where, man, the, the hair on your body, on your arms and on your neck just stands straight up. A ten hut, right? You get that chill up and down your spine. That's what's going on with him as he just lies there in this mode, in this dream, gazing at this supernatural apparition. And he's terrified. Kind of reminds me of the response that, that some saints had in, in, the, in the Scripture when they, an angel visited them. They were terrified. He then heard a voice. What did the Spirit say? we got to move to our last lines. Verses 17 through 21. Here's what that Spirit said to Eliphaz. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his Maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth? Verse 20 between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. And lastly, is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? The Spirit asked Eliphaz a, a or he actually just asks a twofold rhetorical question. And the anticipated answer here is no. The question he asks, can mortal man be made right before God? Can he be made pure before his maker? The answer is no. No man can make himself right before God. No man can make himself pure before his maker. Now this verse promotes the doctrine of total depravity. It's not me trying to layer some Calvinism into the text here. It's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not interested in layering Calvinism into anything here. The verse plainly promotes that doctrine. Without a doubt, the doctrine teaches that, that natural man is sinful through and through, spiritually dead, and totally incapable of believing in God on his own. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. It teaches that natural man cannot secure a righteous standing before God through religion or through piety. Galatians 2, 16. It teaches that the good deeds of natural man are but filthy rags before God. Isaiah 64, 4. It teaches that natural man is inherently displeasing to God. Psalm 14, verse 3. The Spirit literally contradicts certain aspects of Eliphaz's own theology here, especially his concept of man's goodness. Man is not good according to God's perfect standards. He is a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, one of my favorite verses. 
Eliphaz made the mistake of thinking that the word brought to him from this spirit was for Job and not for himself because he did not self-correct at this point. He just kept thinking that man is inherently good in some regard. And this spirit is telling him man is not good and man is certainly not good enough to make himself right or pure before God. This is a classic case of this spirit, of God probably through this angel, this spirit, trying to reveal to Eliphaz his own false theology. And yet he thinks that he was given this vision for Job. I'll tell you, it is, it is easier to apply the truth to others than to ourselves, isn't it? <laughs> right? Why? Because it is easier to see others' sins than our own sins. How many times have you been sitting next to somebody while the preacher's preaching and then you hear something and you elbow the person next to you and say, you need to listen to this. You need to listen to this because this is something you do. And then that poor sap that's sitting there is listening going, I do do this, but so does this person. Hey, you know you do that too as well, right? No, I don't. This is a classic case of missing the forest for the trees where, where you see a truth and it actually applies to you, but you don't think it applies to you. You think it applies to your spouse. You think it applies to your friend. You think it applies to whomever. It was much easier for Eliphaz to see Job's sin, and Job didn't even have sin. But somehow I know you had to sin because look what's happening to you. You need to listen to the spirit that, I, that visited me. It is easier to apply the truth to others than to ourselves. That is a fact. That is something we need to be mindful of and careful of. The truth is to always apply to us first. First to the minister who preaches, then to the congregation. Or will, in my case, first to the minister and then to my family because they get the sermon long before you do. But it applies to us first. If we're reading the Word of God and we, we start thinking about everyone else... We've already gone off the rail. Be thinking about yourself. Eliphaz is clueless here. In verse 18, the spirit here uses logic to bolster the reality of man's inability to make himself right and pure before God. It just further illustrates that truth. Angels are superior to man. They have abilities we do not have. We tend to think of angels as good, right? That's typically what we think. But the Bible says some angels are bad. Some angels are not on God's side. Jude chapter 1, verse 6. There's only one chapter, so it should just be verse 6. Some angels are plainly not on God's side. In this text here, we learn that some angels are charged with error by God. In any case... God puts no trust in His servants, in angels whatsoever. Even when they are on His side, He puts no trust in them. If He puts no trust in angels who are superior to us and, and even on His side, how much less would He trust those who are inferior, those who dwell in houses of clay, that means flesh, who have dust as a foundation, how did God create the first man? He took the dust together, right, and formed a man, right? Genesis 2, 7, we have dust as a foundation. Who are fragile and transitory. 
In other words, if God does not trust angels, how much less does he trust man? A lot less. Verses 20 through 21, the Spirit describes the brevity of life to bolster the reality of man's inability to make himself right and pure before God. Like moths, men are beaten to pieces and perish forever without much regard from others. The phrase beaten to pieces is an allusion to to things that destroy our health like diseases or violence and these things, etc., Again, this is poetry. The phrase perish forever is an allusion to death. The phrase is not their tent cord plucked up within them is an allusion to the brevity of life. Life is short because man is fragile and transitory. He is up one moment and then he is down the next moment like a camping tent. The phrase Do they not die and that without wisdom is an allusion to the self-centered existence of man. Man lives for himself. He pretends that God does not exist. He has no regard for God. And when his tent cord is plucked up, when he dies, he dies without wisdom. The logic is fairly simple here, this logic coming from the Spirit. If Life is short because man is fragile and transitory like moths. And if he has no power to ward off illnesses and death, and if he lives for himself and possesses no true wisdom, how could he possibly make himself right and pure before God? He cannot. That is this Spirit's point. Closing, I'm not exactly sure why Eliphaz shared the revelation of this spirit with Job. It's it's perplexing. It had been bothering me all week. And, And the main reason is because I believe Job already understood these truths. I don't think Job had a kind of theological view where he thought that man could earn his salvation, that he thought that his good deeds could earn for him some kind of righteousness. He knew that he couldn't make himself pure before his maker. He, he, if, he, if, if he didn't understand that, he wouldn't have been making sacrifices, animal sacrifices, which established some level of purity before God temporarily. I believe that Job, everything that was said to Job here in this chapter, he already knew. He already understood. In fact, I think Job was a better theologian and a more godly man than all three of those jabronis put together. It's his story. It's not a story about them. If Eliphaz had been a more godly, less blameless guy or whatever, then it would have been the book of Eliphaz. It's the book of Job. Job was superior to these men in every way, and he proves that through this wonderful book. He understood. He understood. So I I don't know exactly why Eliphaz is saying what he said. I know that he thinks that Job is in sin, that that he's been sowing iniquity. I get that. 
Maybe that's why he's doing it here. I, I think it had to do with Eliphaz's desire. I'm talking about the, the vision that he got here, sharing that. I think it had to do with his desire to establish a level of authority, maybe over Job, so that Job would take his correction seriously. I mean, right, he's, he's in a sense boasting about some special revelation that was revealed to him during a dream. When, when, your, print, when, when, you, when your print, when your friend goes to that level, you got to be like, here we go, right? You're pulling that on me? You got a special dream? Now, if somebody tells you that today, I would no longer be friends with them because that's just wackadoodle. But in, in, in one commentator says, I don't think he got a vision at all. I think he made this up. Literally, one commentator says, I don't think he had a spirit visited him at all. I think he made it up to try to establish some level of authority. Well, I don't know. Why does he do it? And here's the real question we have to ask. Were Eliphaz's words helpful to his suffering friend? That's really what we have to ask. Because the whole point of him traveling all that distance from Temen to come, come see Job was to encourage him, was to sympathize with him, right? We have to ask that question. Were his words at this juncture at all helpful? I see nothing in this text that would actually console Job during his season of terrible loss. Zero. I see nothing here. I see no encouragements here, none. And guess what? Eliphaz was not finished. There's a second half, 27 more verses of this. And I'll tell you what, we need to learn from his example. We need to learn from his poor example here. As believers, we are not called to press salt into the wounds of the suffering. We are not called to assume bad motives or some kind of sin that brought all this about, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. We are not called to pronounce judgments, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. We are called to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2, and speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15. Speaking the truth in love. What does that mean? Speaking the truth in love to a sufferer does not necessarily refer to our tone or volume level. That's typically what we think of. I need to share truth with, with, with Fred here, but I just need to be mindful of how I say it, and I don't need to get too loud. I certainly shouldn't shout at him because he's really hurting. We think that's what that means. Just speak that truth, but do it like Mr. Rogers or Bob Ross. I'm going to paint a little encouragement for you here with some auburn orange. Right? No, speaking the truth in love has to do with choosing truths from Scripture that are appropriate and helpful, truths that encourage, truths that gently correct, if necessary, truths that build up, Truths that redirect a weary soul and raise one's countenance. Eliphaz did not understand this. He was like a bull in a china shop, a, a tornado in a trailer park. 
He did more damage than good with these words. And I guarantee you, because there's a, there's a self-righteousness in him, I guarantee you, no matter what anyone would say to him, he believed he did the right thing and said the right things and used the precise words he should have used. And if, if Job was just unwilling to accept his encouragements, then that's Job's fault. But I think we can all tell here from the text, he did not use the right words. As Lawson has said over and over, this is a great letter. It was sent to the wrong person. There, there are plenty of people out there that, that needed these stinging words from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but it wasn't Job. He did more damage than good, and we need to learn from his bad example. God will, will bring to us opportunities to counsel and, and, and to, to sympathize, to empathize, to sympathize, to encourage, to exhort battered sheep at times. He will give us these opportunities. And, and if we want to, to, to speak the truth and love, find the right truths and share them gently. If somebody is killed in a hurricane, we don't say to them, well, God has mighty breath that can wipe out those who plow iniquity. Duh! Eliphaz! How stupid! Even though it's true. A great truth, wrong application. Any of you ever done this where you just went into a scenario and said that just, you, and afterwards you said, I cannot believe what I said. I did not help Billy. I always come up with these names because nobody hears name these things. If I say your name, you're like, hey, I, that private, that was a private counseling session, right? You ever, you ever done that though, where you said things and you're like, oh, words come back. And you try to grab them and it's too late and they're ringing in the ears of that person and they're not helpful at all. That's Eliphaz. That's us at times. We need to learn from his poor example. But here's the deal. This is, this is, this is reality. Eliphaz did, however, speak truth. He spoke truth that people today need to hear. I don't think Job needed to hear it in that moment, but there's others that need to hear it. Man cannot make himself pure. Man cannot make himself right before God. He is totally depraved. His religion, his piety, his good deeds are useless. They are but filthy rags before a holy God. Man is not inherently good. We were listening to a radio program the other day where these guys, this woman made a comment, and I said, amen, and it wasn't a religious thing at all. It was probably more political than anything. And she says, well, I think this is the fundamental problem with, with people is that everyone thinks that people are good, but they're not. They're not good. And one of the guys says, no, I think most people are actually good. There's just a, a, a remnant or a group of people out there that aren't good. And they were referring to the Portland riots and all that stuff. 
And I said what she should have said, they should have drew a distinction between law-abiding and non-law-abiding. There's a difference between law-abiding citizens and non-law-abiding. Don't talk about goodness because according to God's standards, no one is good. None. So don't use the word and the term goodness. People are not good. Not according to God's standards. The spirit, the spirit in this text makes this clear. Man is not inherently good. He is sinful. He is wicked. He is self-serving. And left to himself, man will die in his transgressions. He will perish without wisdom. He will burn in hell for eternity. That's truth. And those aren't, that's not truth that people want to talk about from pulpits today. But that's truth, whether we like it or not. Let me give you another truth here, and this truth is not, we don't see this truth in the whole book of Job. We certainly don't see this truth in chapter 4. This is another truth. Because man is inherently wicked, evil, self-serving, he is sinful, he is totally depraved, he is not good, this is why we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His righteousness alone is perfect. His righteousness alone is sufficient. His righteousness alone satisfies a holy, wrathful God. If we are clothed in His righteousness, God sees us as right and pure, and He accepts us. So there is a way for man to be made right and pure before God. That spirit didn't answer it here, but the rest of Scripture does. The only way, it's through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The only way. How can a person become clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? How on earth does this happen? I'm wearing an, an Under Armour shirt with Levi's. This don't feel like the righteousness of Christ. How is a person clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? If we trust in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ for our salvation, He will take our sins and He will give us His righteousness. His righteousness is around me right now even though we cannot see it. When He takes our sins and gives us His righteousness, we call this double imputation. We call it, I like to refer to it as the great exchange. Can you imagine that? That someone is beautiful and is perfect, law-abiding at the highest level, never sinned. Jesus obeyed all of God's laws. Can you imagine somebody being, that, that is so so perfect and so pure and so holy and so spotless and blameless and upright. It makes Job look bad when you put Jesus next to him, but, but somebody that possesses all of that would be willing to take your nasty, stupid sin and put it all over him and give you his righteousness? That's the good news of the gospel. 
but you got to repent. You're not like Job was in a sense, upright and blameless. If you're not in Christ already, you're a wretched sinner. You are clothed in filth in everything you do, no matter how good it is. The speed limit's 35. I drove 35. Doesn't matter what you do. It's all an offense to our holy God. Everything done outside of faith and believing in God, believing in Christ, is sin. And yet if we trust in Him, if we believe in Him, if we turn away from our unbelief, if we turn away from what we thought were righteous deeds earning our way into heaven, if we turn away from all of that garbage and put simple trust in Christ, believing that He died to pay for our sins, was buried to settle our accounts, rose victorious from the grave three days later, conquering sin, Satan, death, and hell for us. If we believe in Him and in His finished work, you are clothed in the righteousness of God, and when God looks upon you, it's as if you never sinned. You are blameless. You are upright. You are righteous. We are fragile and transitory. Our tent cords could be plucked up at any moment. We could perish today, tomorrow, next week. If we do not have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we will one day stand before God unrighteous, impure, and condemned. Put your trust in Jesus Christ alone and be made righteous so that you can stand before God one day, not as condemned, but as an heir to His glorious kingdom. Amen?